So every year, there's over 1 million infants that die of severe respiratory illnesses, um, making it one of the leading causes of under five mortality in the world. Um, and when you look at those deaths, the breakdown, so 99% of those are in low to middle income countries and, and kind of shows you that there are good treatments for these conditions, but they're not reaching most of the world. Welcome to another episode of MedTech Mindset. I'm your host, Dan Henrich, and I'm Director of Marketing at SmithWise. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to take this show on the road to Kalamazoo, Michigan. I met there with Stephen and Anna John, who are a brother and sister team developing a new medical device called NeoVent. NeoVent is intended to bring ventilator support to infants in respiratory distress in emerging markets. Stephen is a mechanical engineer, and Anna is a biomedical engineer. Both are currently in medical school, Stephen at the University of Michigan and Anna at Western Michigan University. We were also joined by their dad, Sunil. Sunil is a pediatric cardiologist and is serving as one of the clinical advisors on this project. The John family draws their inspiration for NeoVent from their experience living in Nepal, where Sunil worked and Stephen and Anna spent most of their childhoods. NeoVent is a simple mechanical device that's added to an existing bubble CPAP machine to deliver two levels of air pressure to a patient at a very low cost and without the need for electric power. You can see a video of NeoVent working if you go to our blog and find the post for this episode. I sat down with Stephen, Anna, and Sunil at their home to talk about NeoVent and the experiences that led them to this project. So let's jump into my conversation with Stephen, Anna, and Sunil. Sunil, I think it, it'll be really interesting for our, our listeners to hear, you know, our, our families have known each other for a while, but you're new to all of them. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, uh, how you and, uh, and your wife ended up in Nepal? You, uh, you grew up, I think, in, in this area, but your parents came here from India. Most people who do that do that for the educational and economic opportunities it'll provide their kids, and yet you uh, took that and went back to the developing world. Can you tell us about that journey? Sure. Um, so, yeah, my uh, parents uh, came to this country, and I was actually born in Detroit, Michigan. But um, we had a chance to go to India fairly often. And um, when I was a teenager, actually in college, I was just gripped with the fact that there's such a disparity uh, in terms of resources in the world and uh, I went to a, a conference in a place called Urbana, Illinois, and decided at that point in time that I wanted to um, work in a place that had uh, much greater need um, than in the United States. When I first met Gina, um, I suggested this to her, and she said, what exactly would that mean, mud house, tin roof? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I don't know, we'll see. And to make a long story short, one day I got a page at the office saying, there's this opportunity for a pediatrician in Nepal, uh, 135 bed hospital in the foothills of the Himalayas, and there's an email address. What do you think? So we sent an email and went there for a look see, and the next thing we knew, we had fallen in love with the place and the people. Um, and where there were 35 pediatricians, um, two neonatal units, and a pediatric intensive care unit in Kalamazoo. There were no pediatricians for a population of several million uh, in the area that uh, we were going to. Um, and so we were able to live there for a number of years. 
And uh, for 11 years, actually, from 2000 to 2011, our youngest son was born there. And uh, Stephen and Anna spent most of their childhood there. Tell me about kind of the, the, the typical patients that you see there. How far from, from there do they come uh, to, uh, to your, your place? And what are, their, uh, what are the closest medical facilities besides, besides yours? Well, now there are, are many more medical facilities than there were uh, when we first went. Um, when we first went, people were coming from as far as India, um, sometimes walking two and three days to get to the hospital. But now there are many more hospitals, uh, but it's still a fairly uh, busy place. Um, and uh, we see uh, the pediatric ward, for example, has about 50 beds. Um, we see lots of uh, babies and uh, infants, children, uh, as well as, of course, the adult uh, portion of the hospital. Um, so a busy place with lots of uh, uh, individuals who ha- often have um, fairly severe illness um, that's finally prompted them to come visit a hospital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's hear kind of about the, the problem that, um, that you are, uh, are working to solve um, in terms of, uh, of infant respiratory therapies and, and um, uh, kind of the, the state of, of uh, the state for the, the device that you're working to, to bring to market. So every year there's over 1 million infants that die of severe respiratory illnesses. Um, making it one of the leading causes of under five mortality in the world. Um, And when you look at those deaths, the breakdown, so 99% of those are in low to middle income countries and and kind of shows you that there are good treatments for these conditions, but they're not reaching most of the world. Mm -hmm. So that was really the the problem. We sort of experienced it firsthand in Nepal, but then we came to realize, hey, this isn't just happening in Nepal. It's happening all over the world. Gotcha. And so you... you, when you and I spoke about about your project, well, why don't you tell us about the the name of your project, the name of your company that you've formed around it, and um, kind of the unique challenges that you you have to solve. I think you mentioned three particular um, areas in our conversation before this. Yeah. yeah so the device is called the NeoVent, and the company is called AimTech Advanced Innovative uh, Medical Technologies, and. Kind of the three areas that we were targeting were cost, um, not dependent on continuous electricity, and simplicity of usage. And so um, the first thing is in many of these areas, in these low to middle income countries, they can't afford the thirty to $40,000 ventilators. And so um, they, they just don't have access to that. That's just out of their budget and scope. Uh, additionally, even if these ventilators are donated, which in some cases they are, Oftentimes, um, the people to manage them, take care of them, maintain them, run them are not there. Uh, They're complicated, and here in the States, we'd have respiratory therapists who would um, run that, but in those settings, often, you're already limited on staff to begin with, and you don't have someone who uh, can necessarily devote the time to take care of those things, so complexity was a big issue. Um, And finally, electricity there is sporadic, so in many areas, Nepal and around the world, electricity will come and go, and, and that could mean if an infant is on a ventilator, they could suffocate and die just from electricity going. And so those are kind of the three areas that we really wanted to target um, to make it low cost, to make it really easy and intuitive to use so a busy nurse um, could quickly put it up and set it up so that the child could get the care as soon as possible um, and to have it not dependent on electricity. Uh, when we post this on our blog, at least, we'll include some, some links to... Uh to the videos of your device working, but can you describe it for the people who won't see it, um, how your device works and, um, uh, you know, the, the basic engineering behind it? Sure. So we wanted to have a 
purely mechanical design. As Anna mentioned, it, it needs to be non-electric. And so we have this little inverted flow valve that basically collects bubbles um, that are coming from your expiratory tubing. So you've got your inspiratory tubing, sends air to the patient, the expiratory tubing carries air away from the patient, and that's lowered in a container of water, and so it's bubbling. So this little float valve collects those bubbles. Once it's collected enough of them, it becomes light, buoyant, and rises. Once it rises, it vents, and so it becomes heavy again, it sinks. And so you're using the, the bubbles to basically have this little valve move up and down. And we've designed the valve so that as it moves up and down, the pressure is also moving up and down. So the nurse could explain to the patient, hey, keep an eye on this little valve. If it stops moving up and down for some reason, call us, we need to check to see if there's a leak in the circuit or, or something has happened because um, it's not working. So yeah, basically just a little mechanical valve that moves up and down. So is it powered then entirely by the, the, the patient breathing out? So it's powered off of compressed air. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of hospitals will have like a big oxygen cylinder and you can get these little venturi devices that will entrain air so that you're, you're delivering air and oxygen. So these places have power and there are places that can compress the gases for these cylinders. The problem is that the power is sporadic. And so once mm -hmm. you have that oxygen cylinder at the bedside, you're guaranteed that for the whole duration of that cylinder, you've got continuous power. Yeah. So it's almost like a, a battery of sorts. Yeah, yeah. So um, your device then, does it, does it rely on, just on that, that compressed air being? That's it. Yeah, so yeah. The, the particular hospital actually has an oxygen compressing plant where they can make their own cylinders. A lot of smaller hospitals will just have a Jeep that drives um, from a nearby city and will have a bunch of these oxygen tanks mm -hmm. in the back and every week they'll get more tanks and they'll, send, they'll get the full ones and then they'll send the empty ones and that's usually what hospitals will do. Okay, and I, I think... I, I saw, and I remember a little bit from our conversations previously, there's sort of a, a, a continuous air uh, CPAP technology that has existed for quite some time, but the what is new about this is the is the two different levels of pressure. Is that correct for, for exactly. breathing in and breathing out? So bubble CPAP is an intervention that has been uh, used extensively for the last 30, 40 years. Um, it's kind of um, recently started to get even more popular just because it's so simple, uh, but still very effective. So with bubble CPAP, you've got your compressed air that comes to the patient. And then again, that, that expiratory limb is lowered in a container and it bubbles. And however deep that's submerged, so if it's submerged five centimeters, mm -hmm. that's the pressure in the whole circuit that the kid is experiencing. So it's very intuitive. Mm -hmm. The doctor writes, you know, seven centimeters, and then somebody just makes sure, oh, it's seven centimeters deep. And if the kid is not doing well, you can maybe make mm -hmm. it a little bit more deep so, so that just by adding water to the cylinder exactly yeah. so mm -hmm. that's used here in michigan that's used in nepal it's used in many places and here in the states though if somebody was too sick and needed additional support they would take you off of the bubble CPAP and put you on a ventilator in some sort of mode right but for most of the rest of the world that's all that they have and so our goal was can we design something to provide additional care, but to do it in the same way as bubble CPAP? So bubble CPAP is low cost. It's not electric. It's very intuitive. So we need to preserve those attributes if our technology is to actually reach those settings. Okay. Tell me about the cost of, uh, of your device when you bring it to market uh, versus, um, versus other ventilators. Sure. So we're hoping to be able to bring it um, at a price point much less than, than existing ventilators. Presently, it costs us a couple hundred dollars um, just because we're producing it in such small quantities, but we're hopeful that as we produce it at scale, we can drive that down significantly. Uh, I think the challenge is making sure that we're still using 
very robust materials, particularly given these environments and, and having a very solid product um, while keeping it very affordable. So yeah, hopefully the cost will decrease even further from what it costs us now to make just because of economies of scale. Yeah. Molding instead of 3D printing, for example. Mm-hmm. Hey listeners, just a quick break to remind you that MedTech Mindset is a production of SmithWise, a medical device development firm with offices in Boston and Philadelphia. We help innovators accelerate new medical technologies along their path to market from concept all the way to commercialization. Visit us at smithwise.com to learn more. Yeah, so we've uh, had extensive support from uh, many people. Um, We've got a team of uh, engineers at Western who have been helping us um, develop and validate the product. We've got a team of clinicians at University of Michigan who have helped us as we've tried to validate the product sort of at each of the different preclinical stages. Um, clinicians from Respiratory Therapists Without Borders, a nonprofit that we work very closely with to try and figure out, hey, is this something that what we design will be applicable to other settings beyond the setting that we know? Um, and there's probably many more. Oh, yeah, collaborating with um, a respiratory therapist school here in town to do some uh, more advanced lung simulator testing. Um, and we had, we've been, in this past year, we had some mentorship from a regulatory consultant as well as uh, another individual who uh, was also doing a medical device startup, and that was very, very helpful. Like, they gave very practical help as we were kind of getting to the specifics of design development. Mm-hmm. And this project is, is several years old, so tell me about where you are in, time, in terms of um, the different prototyping rounds you've been through. Um, you know, how many iterations have you, have you had, and, uh, and sort of where do you consider it uh, in the process? Sure. So uh, we've, if you count all of the early prototypes, we've had hundreds of prototypes. Um, but I think, um, yeah, over the last year or two, we've definitely gotten much closer to, um, I think over the last couple of years, we've had a design that worked and that we knew that the concept was good, but making a device that's uh, easier for people to use. So I'll give you an example. Two years ago, when we took devices to Nepal for your nurses to use, it took them about two and a half minutes to set up. And we had a couple O-rings and some small connectors that they weren't really big fans of. And so over this last year, um, what we've been doing is to try and simplify the design as much as possible. And so this last summer, when we took devices there for nurses to use, it was down to under 30 seconds to go from nothing to holding setup. Um, And so they were much happier. Yeah. So, yeah. And additionally with that, in the last year, we've been really working to make the device out of materials that can be cleaned and that are patient safe and, and all that. So that's something we particularly focused on this last year as well. Uh-huh. And how about um, your your clinical trials up to this point? I understand you, you've done some bench testing, you've done some, some animal testing. Um, tell us about that. Sure. So we sort of took it in, in different stages. The first question is, can we deliver the right level of low and high pressure over thousands of cycles because it's not enough to do it once or twice. Mm -hmm. And so on infant mannequins, we set up our device and we had it run over several thousand cycles to see how how reliable is this. Then the second uh, set of validation was to look in an infant lung simulator where you can actually set the resistance and compliance to match an infant in respiratory distress. And what we wanted to see there was, all right, your traditional ventilator in sort of a bi-level mode and then neovent, are we able to deliver the same pressures and volumes? How close are these? Um, the third set of tests were actually in a living model. And so in a sedated rabbit model at the University of Michigan, we wanted to see, can we actually generate the same oxygen, carbon dioxide, and pH levels 
as your traditional ventilator. In a living system, I mean, there, there's the ventilation, but there's a whole bunch of other things because it is a living system. And um, so that was sort of the approach that we used to kind of convince ourselves and also be able to show others that, hey, we're able to deliver the right pressures each time on an infant, simulated infant lung, and then in a living system, it appears that we're able to deliver the same ventilation. So, I mean, all of that's really hopefully building a case that, hey, this is something that's safe to use in trials. And a lot of the work that we're doing now is to try and get those human studies started. Um, and and so it's been exciting to kind of go to clinicians, show them all the work that's happened to date, and sort of brainstorm with them some of the specific details of, okay, how do you structure this trial so that it can really um, show you uh, in the least, with, with the least amount of effort, but show you, hey, this is helping kids mm-hmm. um, effectively. So, yeah. Yeah. There are several awards that, that uh, your, your team has won. Um, can you tell me about those and, and any funding that's come with them that's helped you in the, in the development process? Sure. So to date, actually, we've exclusively funded the project uh, through those sorts of awards. So that has been a huge, uh, a huge bonus. Um, the, the awards also, in addition to the funding, though, um, helped us. Uh, so I'll give you an example. So one of the prizes, the Lemelson MIT Prize, um, having that award then as we're going and demonstrating to clinicians in a lot of these settings sort of gives a bit of a stamp of approval that, oh, some very smart people have looked at this and they think it's a legit technology. Um, they were also able to connect us with many other startups, like Anna alluded to, that were a, a bit farther ahead of us, mm-hmm. um, but that were also developing healthcare products for emerging markets, but that had already started selling their products. And so those connections and being able to talk and ask those people a lot of questions were immensely helpful. So, um, yeah, I think the, the competitions were helpful from, from many different fronts, the funding, um, the networks and mentorship, uh, and also sort of the, the third-party validation. Um, yeah, we've been very blessed. Yeah, absolutely. And how about, Anna, I think you mentioned regulatory, uh, you've been working with a regulatory consultant, and that's sort of um, maybe taking up a lot of the time at this point in the, in the development process. Can you tell me about what are your regulatory goals? Um, obviously, this is intended for you know emerging markets. Um, are you looking to clear it through FDA, through... Uh, individual um, regulatory bodies in the countries where you're working. Tell me about that. Sure, yeah. So the past year, um, as we've been kind of working to get our design controls off the ground, the focus is really, um, first and foremost, to make sure we had it, tried to have a good quality system in place and making sure that we're analyzing our risks, that we're understanding our specs, testing them, documenting that testing, and and really doing that so that um, getting feedback from the regulatory consultant and from this other med device startup was really helpful in the details and how to do that. Um, and so as we've been doing that, the goal is is to aim towards, we are looking at um, getting 510k clearance here in the states. And um, additionally, we have to take into account the regulatory boards in, 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 in the countries themselves, the ministries of health, their process. But I do think that having that 510k clearance uh, is definitely a benefit. And when they see that it is approved, uh, in the states that that would definitely open doors um, and not all countries would require that necessarily but even if they didn't we'd still want to make sure that our device is to a, a very high quality standard and is um, is is meeting is meeting the requirements as much as we can yeah so um, do you anticipate then that the the clinicals that you have done up to this point will be sufficient 
data for your 510k process to, to show safety and efficacy, or do you anticipate you'll need to do additional testing? I think we'll have to see. I mean, the, the data to date has been very good, and so, um, but from talking to other companies, it seems that FDA can ask for more, and, and so we'll just have to be ready mm-hmm. to provide more if need be. So it, it, it all depends on, on how they see it and how we can compare it to the predicates, but I think the data to date has been very good and has clearly demonstrated um, very good results as well. So I think that we're off to a very good start with that. Have you had any any direct interactions with FDA yet, um, pre-submission meetings or anything like that? Not yet. No, okay. Not yet. So that's yeah, kind of the next the next great hurdle. That's coming. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, so we've talked about you know there there's a bunch of different angles I think that our listeners are interested in uh, working in the med tech space. There's of course the the engineering angle, the clinical angle, the regulatory angle. Let's talk a bit about the business angle. What's your what's your model sort of? You have a very your target is to have a very low cost uh, device that is accessible to um, to uh, uh, patients and to healthcare providers that that don't have a lot of money. What is the model for um, distributing this this device and uh, who will ultimately uh, pay for it? Sure. So there's a couple different groups that will buy it. So ultimately the the baby in respiratory distress is the one benefiting from the, from the treatment, but the question is how do we get it to each of those hospitals? In our markets, it, it looks like there's a, a couple different camps. So first, a lot of these places will have some sort of government healthcare system, and so we've had the chance to show the product to a couple of uh, ministers of health and, and their staff um, to just sort of gauge whether this is something that they could see potentially rolling out uh, in their government facilities. And so, so that's one angle. The second angle is... Uh, sort of um, relief agencies, uh, groups that, that support many hospitals, particularly from the equipment side, again, in emerging markets. Um, and so in a similar way, we've gone to the people heading up those organizations and showed them the product and tried to get a sense of, all right, is this something that uh, you like and would find helpful? And we've, uh, as we've been discussing it, it's kind of um, seemed like it would make sense to basically implement in a, a couple hospitals um, and then if it goes well, then that agency can then look at distributing it to all of their hospitals. So you sort of try it uh, on a small scale, and then if it works well, you deploy it everywhere. The third group is just independent uh, hospitals, so um, mission hospitals and the like, um, where there's not really, they're not getting equipment from the government. They, they're sort of in charge of their own equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still have sort of their own networks that we can, again, show that the device works in a couple of those hospitals and then spread it to other areas um, it's been exciting, so we, we've uh, started to meet with some distributors who take care of the in-country distribution as well as some international med device distributors that will take it from your warehouse in the States or wherever um, to those local distributors. And it seems like there are some players that are now um, setting that up pretty well um, to really reduce costs through economies of scale. So uh, it seems like actually getting the device to the customers um, whether it be a direct hospital or whether it be some of these larger governments or organizations um, might be less difficult than it would have been 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how about um, funding uh, funding hurdles? You, you mentioned that you basically funded this up to this point with uh, prizes from, from competitions that you've entered, and, and there may be several more of those um, that, uh, that you may consider entering, but do you have a um, kind of a... a, a are you in search of, of investors? Are you um, working uh, on any types of grant applications or anything like that? What's your plan for 
kind of the the bigger hump that it will take to to bring it to production. Sure. So we're always uh, looking for funding from from various sources, and you always have a couple of of grants that you send out, and you see what happens. Um, but yeah, I think we've been fortunate because our product is so simple, and there, there's so few components. Um, you know, that's how we've been able to get this far, just with the prize money, uh, sort of here and there. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it sort of remains to be seen whether we can continue with that route to reach for sales and then start to have income and then sort of organically grow versus whether it will need either a larger grant or investment or something like that. So Sure, sure. Yeah, I would imagine that that um, in the near future you'll get to the point, right, where you, you need to move from 3D printing to, to injection molding, I would imagine, right? And then Which are once, you're, <laughs> once you're tooling injection molds, then, then the... the uh, the cost per unit may go way down, but the, the overall cost may, may go way up. Hey listeners, one more quick break to mention that you can visit the smithwise.com blog to see more information about NeoVent and AimTech Health, including a video of the NeoVent device working and a link to their webpage. If you have a great MedTech story to tell, or maybe a suggested guest we should have on the show, or a topic in MedTech you think we should cover, send me an email at marketing at smithwise.com or use the contact us form on our website. It's difficult markets to reach for many reasons, mm-hmm. um, and so it yet remains to be seen whether this product truly is affordable enough, simple enough, intuitive enough for people to just pick up and use and um, be happy with the results that it's, it's uh, delivering. So um, we definitely have much work yet to do, and there, there are many risks. I, I think um, it's been very exciting. So this last summer, as we went um, throughout... Uh, some countries in Africa and uh, in Southeast Asia, um, sort of explaining the device concept, showing the device and getting feedback from clinicians. It was very exciting for people to be like, okay, um, how much does that cost? Can I order them now? And we had to explain, no, 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 I'm sorry, we, we're not selling this now. We're, we're trying to get your feedback and understand. But yeah. that, w- that was very reassuring. So I, I think if we can get the regulatory clearance and start selling to these people who are interested, um, I'm hopeful that we'll be well on our way. So I think regulatory is one of the big pieces we're working on now. Great. So, Sunil, I understand that um, you have been involved, uh, sort of in the in the um, clinical testing, or the, or in some respects in bringing the the uh, prototypes into into the, your hospital. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that process? So, um, you know, uh, the reality is, I've spent many many hours uh, with a handbag just. Uh, you know, giving manual ventilation because we didn't have uh, other supportive um, uh, equipment available. And then the first time we went back, we came back to the United States, the biggest things in our suitcase on the way back were two ventilators and all the supplies. And then those would run out of battery life or you would have some part that was missing and you and everybody was scared about all the knobs and, and the buttons and everything. So I spent a lot of time actually in the hospital training our nurses, training other staff in how to use these ventilators, uh, only to find that when I was gone or when other people were there that were not comfortable with them, they would just sit in the cupboard. Um, and so that was really frustrating. Um, we went, we had a, a gentleman visit from Respiratory Therapists Without Borders, um, and he brought this wonderful high-tech um, uh, nasal cannula system, um, but it required electricity and 
the first time we had a power surge, a vital component in that also got fried. Mm-hmm. So the setting that we were in, we, we had, you know, if you came to our hospital and looked in the closet, you would find a bunch of uh, used uh, ventilators that really hadn't solved the problem other than for the isolated patient here or there. Well, this, this gentleman that came, uh, after he saw that uh, these solutions just weren't fitting well for our hospital, said, how about bubble CPAP? And that got us started on this whole bubble CPAP idea. Um, and I have to tell you, that was a, a game changer for our hospital because um, little babies who had been um, really very desperately ill now with a little bit of support provided by just a, you know a tube submerged under uh, some water, um, we're able to get additional strength. And so the first step for any hospital to be able to use a device like what Stephen and Anna are talking about is for them to have really good bubble CPAP. And that's not as easy as you'd think. Um, so for the past two or three years, we've actually been working to get a very good level of bubble CPAP and a good level of monitoring. Um, so for example, if there's not a, a good seal at the nose, if the, the um, for whatever reason, the bubbling stops, um, that means that the child is not receiving the ventilation that they should receive. Um, and so because the nurses um, and medical staff have become quite familiar with bubble CPAP, the powerful aspect of, of this, the NeoVent device is it's a single connection switch. So you have a baby who's on bubble CPAP, you can literally just take it off, put the, the child on the NeoVent. Um, the whole process takes about five seconds and now you have two levels of pressure. So um, it's been exciting to, uh, to work with the staff in the hospital. The nurses and the doctors were all very enthusiastic about uh, uh, starting to use this um, and were a little disappointed that they couldn't just start using it right away, um, that you know we needed to go through all of, all of this testing, etc. But uh, they are very uh, eager to, to start um, putting it into effect for those babies who are a little bit sicker than what bubble CPAP can, uh, can provide support of. Well, I, I think we covered a lot of uh, kind of the talking points that, that we had discussed over, over email, but um, anything else you want our listeners to know about, about the project? Um, yeah, no, always happy to, to talk about the project. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's exciting for us um, as we get closer, hopefully, to bringing this to market um, after these years of, of product development. Yeah, we're always looking for um, additional folk to, to collaborate with us or uh, for funders or for anything along those lines, um, yeah, to keep it going. Great. Great. Well, this is a really inspiring project. Um, I want to thank you all for making the time to, to talk with me. I'm glad we could do it in person. Uh, I, I want to uh, tell you, I think that um, I and our listeners uh, and our team at Smithwise really admire the work that uh, you folks are doing. So thank you so much. I want to thank you all for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having us. And that's our show for today. If you liked it, please subscribe and leave us a great review on your podcast platform of choice. MedTech Mindset is produced by Smithwise, right here in our Philadelphia office. Our theme music is composed and personally curated by the Polish Ambassador. Thanks to our guests today, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on MedTech Mindset.